Once again, on this Sunday, uh, the readings from 2 Corinthians and the story in the Gospel have some connection to uh, understanding the nature of Christian discipleship, the cost, the ways and the means, uh, the centrality of, of becoming a disciple, of uh, following Jesus, following the Savior on the way. So this morning I'm going to preach on the, on the epistle uh, from 2 Corinthians and also on the Gospel. Uh, Last week I talked a little bit about the marks of discipleship, and the reading from 2 Corinthians certainly have some aspects of this. I thought a more succinct way of explaining this might be from the catechism rather than the five marks of the disciple, uh, to the question in the catechism, what is the duty of all Christians? Answer. The duty of all Christians is to follow Christ, to come together week by week for corporate worship, and to work, pray, and give for the spread of the kingdom of God. So Paul in 2 Corinthians today is writing about stewardship and its centrality and importance in the life of the Christian community. But before I talk about the reading itself, I want to rehearse a little background about uh, the Corinthian correspondence. Early in Corinthians, Paul mentions that um, he has agreed to take up a collection uh, for the Jerusalem church, which uh, needs some financial support. And uh, some of the churches that he has founded have, all, have done this faithfully, this, the Philippian congregation, for example. And so he's writing today to the Corinthians to remind them about this. But here's what's happened. Paul raised this issue with the Corinthian church. And then in his absence, uh, individuals within the Corinthian community and some who had come into Corinth to the Christian community had begun to question uh, the validity of Paul's uh, apostleship. And so Paul is now engaged and has been in an extensive defense of his apostleship against these uh, people who have been saying that Paul's ministry is inauthentic and so forth. So two main groups present in the Corinthian community, some from the outside, some from the inside, probably could be understood as, as this. The first group would say, in order for you to be a faithful Christian, you need to understand that Paul was wrong, and you need to keep the Jewish law. You need to practice the Jewish law if you're going to be a real Christian. That means that all the males must be circumcised. It means you must keep the Jewish dietary laws. And it means that you must keep the the Jewish Sabbath. That is the minimum that you need to observe in order to be a true Christian. Remember, Paul's view is, uh, what do the Gentiles do, need to do to be in? To receive the same sense of being in that the Jews do, who did all these things. And he says... You need to believe in Christ. You need to be in Christ. And when you do that, you don't have to do anything else. 
This is not to take away anything that people who have been uh, people of the covenant and have practiced have done. Paul says in more than one place in his writings that if God were to come now to judge us, I will be blameless in front of him. I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. Paul is not Martin Luther. He's not neurotic as a bed bug. Okay? Worrying. He believes that he is blameless. So he's concerned about who's in and how you get in and how you stay in. So that's one group. The second group uh, that has come in, or maybe has, to some degree, already there, have been to say, now look, Paul may have told you about this, but we're telling you that Jesus had a whole series of secret teachings that you need to know, but we know about. And we need to impart this special knowledge to you. So what Paul has said to you is the incomplete story. And we now have the real story about what it is that you should do to be a real Christian. So Paul in Corinthians and in Galatians and other places engages now in an extended defense of his apostleship. And in this part of 2 Corinthians, he feels now he's at liberty to let that alone for a minute and to talk once again about this collection for Jerusalem. And so many things he says here uh, I just think are wonderful. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even desire to do something, now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does have, or does not have. And what he goes on to say is, you need to begin to understand the ways and the means with regard to how your abundance can match other people's need. This is a built-in stewardship sermon for any pastor, but it also has to do with more than money. It has to do with the ability to think about your abundance, all of the gifts that God has given you. And how do you match your abundance with other people's need? Now, this could be very easily misinterpreted as giving people advice about how to live their lives. And I told you many years ago that a very wise priest told me once that unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. But the opportunity exists for you to be able to share with somebody the abundant learnings that you have had or through your life that we call practical wisdom. One of the definitions of practical wisdom is the accumulated response to adversity. What have you learned 
going through difficult situations? And is any of it of value to anyone else besides you? And is there the opportunity for you to share that with somebody in an appropriate way in your life? How can you use your abundance to match other people's need? In real terms, in financial terms, the Corinthian church appears to be somewhat more well-heeled than the Jerusalem church at this point, the Philippian church more well-heeled, the Colossian churches, the Galatian churches. And so they're beginning to see we need to match our abundance to other people's need. In this case, uh, Jerusalem, the center of where this all came from. Now think about when this occurred chronologically. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. All the Christians fled. Everybody fled Jerusalem. There was hardly anybody there after 70. And people began to slowly uh, trickle back. So Paul is writing. Paul was martyred in between 60 and 62 on the road from Ostia to Rome. So he's writing this letter sometime maybe about 56, 57. And we haven't had the big thing in Jerusalem. This is to support the community now that has remained faithful to the message and work of Jesus Christ. And so he is commending supporting them to the churches that he founded. How do we match our abundance to other people's need? You know, that, that brings into play a lot of public policy questions, doesn't it? I'm not going to talk about them, but it certainly does. So it's a question of how we think about what that means. You know, a bag of groceries and lick the jam lid and bueno suerte. In the reading from Mark's Gospel, uh, we have two healing stories. When we read the healing stories, we do the same thing with them that we do with the parables. Why, what did it mean when Jesus performed the healing? What did the community that wrote Mark's Gospel uh, mean by preserving it and using it? And finally, how do we understand what that what this healing story might mean for us in our own day. Jesus was very reluctant to heal people. You'll even notice that at the conclusion of today's gospel, he said, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want, he doesn't want to be known as a healer. There are a lot of healers walking around during the time of Jesus. He doesn't want this to be the focal point of his ministry. He doesn't refuse to heal people. Today, they asked him to heal them. And he understands the power of the healing uh, stories and the power of healing people as a sign of the presence of the kingdom of God in him and his ability to bring that to bear in real life situations. Always remember that the word to heal is the same word that is used for to save. So the healing work of Christ has something to do with the saving work of Christ. 
And if you and I continue as Christian disciples to carry this into the world, we need to learn what it means to bring that healing, saving power to the world that needs it. In this case, there is a message underneath it in terms of the type of healings that he's willing to perform and in fact performs in this passage in Mark's Gospel. Two healings. The healing of the woman who has had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years and has had no relief from the doctors and has spent down her fortune. No social safety net then. And then Jairus' daughter, the leader of the synagogue, who comes to him and says, I need you to come, my daughter's dying, and I, I want you to heal her. So he goes to do this. And while he goes, the woman with the hemorrhage touches him in this crowd, pressing in on him. And he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, you're in this crowd pushing and pulling and everything, and you're at, who touched you? But he felt something, you know, go out of him. So the woman comes back and she explains to him her circumstances and that she has now been healed. And it strikes me, sometimes people can feel this too. She knew that when this happened, it was more than just symptom relief. It was healing. Both of these healing stories, he goes to Jairus' house. They say, that's no use going in there, she's dead. So he goes in with the premier apostles, Peter, James, John. They go in to the house, shut the door, and he heals the little girl and she gets up. And they were astonished at this. Both of these healing miracles are about something that is very important, and that is inclusion. The woman with the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years was ritually unclean and was a global outcast all that time. In the religious thought world of Jesus' day, in those communities, she could not associate with people. When Jesus went into the house and the little girl had died, he was now in the presence of a corpse, which would render him and Peter, James, and John unclean. Now, you know, you, you need to know this too. In the law, it, there, it isn't sort of no road back, but there's a process that you have to go through to get clicked back in. The woman with the hemorrhage could not do that because it was perpetual. The little girl rose from the dead. But this is a story about restoration from uh, being excluded to now being included. Reginald Fuller, the great uh, Anglican biblical scholar, says these are stories about how God moves out beyond the confines of what could be understood as his own law to seek and save and heal the lost. 
So it's also a story about how God works outside the official boundaries. And that you and I need to be open to the working of the Spirit as it moves. This is very risky business. You know, I'm not saying this in some sentimental way that all of the stuff in terms of the tradition with a capital T and the way Christian people do things now is out the window because it's possible that we may see uh, the Spirit work in another way. But we need to be open to that and to say that one of the things in the uh, enriching our worship rites when we read the lessons, one of the things we can say instead of the word of the Lord which tends to be my preference, but is hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. So when you read this gospel and you think to yourself, well, this isn't merely a story about how Jesus healed somebody, you know, and some may shrug and say, well, it was God, he could heal people. What he did was stand on its ear all of the great tradition that all the people around him who saw this happen believed. So you and I have to spend some time uh, thinking about what inclusion means, what acceptance means, what forgiveness means, what healing means. And what is our responsibility as church to move out into the world to bring that ability to do that to everyone. That was what was in Jesus' ministry, his announcement, that through him he was affirming what even in the sacred literature of his own people had affirmed since the prophets. And that was that God's healing, saving embrace was now being extended to everyone. And that those who followed him needed to be instruments of that action in the world. Mother Teresa used to say, Jesus has no other hands but your hands, no other heart but your heart, no other head but your head, no other legs but your legs. To accomplish this. And this healing story is about that. You know, I forgot to mention something when I was preaching about the Corinthians piece that is very important in all of this. Paul says in the reading that I read to you a little bit earlier, he said, when you began last year not only to do something, but even desire to do something, that's a passage about good intentions. Martin Luther is, it has been attributed to Martin Luther, my Lutheran friends have said this to me, some of the pastors I know, so, but it has been attributed to Luther that he said once, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Don't you think it might be okay to have the odd good intention? that you don't fulfill? Maybe we ought to think about the importance of our good intent. If you want to be an instrument of the healing power of God, if you want to match your abundance with other people's needs, you may have some good intentions about that, not able to follow through. 
You know, don't marinate in your guilt. Think about how you can fulfill them again in some other way. I mean, my good intention for the next three or four days is to not get too anxious, worried, nervous, upset traveling from San Jose to Indianapolis with my wife Nancy, who will have to endure somebody who is behaving like a hothouse plant. Right? So I have some good intentions about that. But when we can't get a cab to get to the thing, I'm going to get worried and nervous and upset. So we're going to have to work on it. The good intentions. So this is about good intentions. You are all participants in bringing to the world the healing power of God. You do it through commending your practical wisdom to other people. You do that by laboring to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love to the world. You do that by practicing generosity with your time, talent, and treasure. Those are the ways that we become true Christian disciples. So this week, think about your good intentions. Think about how important they are. Think also about how important it is to figure out ways to match your abundance with other people's need. Give thanks for any time in your life you may have felt the presence of the healing power of God. If you do those things, you'll be a good Christian disciple. Amen.